There it is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The applause. The crowd goes nuts. What's going on, Neil? Thanks, everyone, for joining us again. I feel like I'm an anchor of an important news. As he tops his paperwork on the Thanks desk. Thanks for joining us. Episode Epi- 17. Yes, we checked. We, we did checked, our research. Wrote it episode. down so we didn't mess it up. Yeah. Master Keys, Neil Andrino. Chandler, Chandler Halberton, yeah. And uh, yeah. How What's you doing? Good, man. Good. Same old, same old. Just grinding away. Got some stuff in the works trying to figure out what to buy next, which is always a fun problem to have, but trying to figure it out. And, uh, you know, now that I've cleared up a little bit of capital or I'm in the process of clearing up a little capital, like we talked about in the last episode, I think, yeah, I've got to figure out how best to allot that. I've got some that I've got to put for the project. I've got some going to invest into this new building, but there's a little extra cash there. And I'm wondering if maybe I can spread that out and pick up something else. And do I want to do that in this climate and all these questions? I don't know. Neil... Shook I'm, his I'm head. Shaking my head. You can't hear it on the mic, but I'm shaking my head. What are you? What are you implying? Hold your cash. Hold the cash. Cold recession. It's all going down. This it's is something. Over. I think we've gently touched on this a couple times. Your fear of what's to come with the global economy. I don't know if we want to dive into that here off the hop, but we're not going to go through it today. But we're going to do a couple episodes on it because I am freaking out. Literally losing my mind. Mm-hmm. Things are changing. Things are changing fast. There are so many issues going on in the background that I think we're being, I don't know how to say, like it's being kind of numbed out to us. Like it, it, We're not noticing it because of the way that corporations have things set up and kind of lifestyle that we lead. And we're in like a first world country that everything's kind of handled well, but in the back end, everything's crumbling. And I think a lot of people kind of look at their little box Yeah. and everyone in the little box right now, a lot of people in their own micro box is doing very well all of a sudden, no to this pandemic of doom and gloom and oh my gosh, how are we going to survive this? Certainly us in the real estate world, the sales, we're in a nice little box doing great. If you're in, you know, contracting, you're in a nice little box doing really well. A lot of other small operators that I know, they're doing well, but there's this underlying thing in all of those, which is a supply problem. Whether it be people, materials, products, like it's, crazy it's crazy the more and the more i find out it's it's a serious serious issue like i was saying to you when we walked in like guys like walmart superstore sobeys their back-end warehouses are emptying out and they're just keeping the shelf so for us like that's why we're not feeling it we go to superstore i can still get my bananas and crackers like it doesn't doesn't matter like everything's still there you know what i mean but in the back end that shelf might not be as packed as it used to be right now it's only two boxes of crackers deep versus eight and out back they got none there's a cracker shortage. There's a cracker shortage. So prepare yourself. Get your cracker. If you want crackers at Christmas, buy them now. But seriously, I, this is, and so it's across the board. It's like I was just saying too, before we turn the mic on, supposed to be building an addition on my house. Went to go order all the materials. March delivery. Yeah. Guess who's not building an addition prior to winter? Yeah, this yeah. Guy. And, and we've kind of heard that through clients who are building and it's like, okay, well, why is the home being delayed another two months and another two months? And it's little things like, oh my gosh, we can't get the siding. We can't get... The windows. Uh, the windows, we can't get the tubs around and all this. And I asked a builder, really large builder, because my clients is sort of feeling like they're getting a bit neglected here. And he said, here's the thing. You know, the siding arrives at this company and it goes to either, you know, the highest bidder or whoever is there literally banging down their door with a truck and essentially saying, I'm taking it. And yeah. driving off with it. And that means that builder got it and every other builder didn't get it. And, you know, for, for people just, their perception of it from the outside is like, well, but things are great. You know, lots of houses are being built. All those tradespeople are Numbers busy. Numbers are up. Numbers are up and this and that. But there is an underlying problem there. And another client in the seafood industry was talking about how they lost one container, just one little container of seafood that was lost to spoilage. Stuck and, in logistics. Yeah, it was stuck just waiting to be... Un, unloaded? Yeah, unloaded, I guess. And, yeah. and the problem is even even if they could get it unloaded, there was no refrigerated storage for it to be kept in. And so it lost like a quarter million dollars worth of seafood due to spoilage. And when you start thinking about what it's going to be like when people are trying to send packages all around the world uh, in these next few months, it, it is concerning. I'll give you that. It's And it's across the board. It's everything. Yeah. I said to you as well, speaking of food, mm. that's the other thing. Like, it's not just products. Like it's, it's food-based items. You just talk to somebody who's a coffee company. Couldn't physically get beans for three months. Had to lay everybody off. So now he's got a shipment of beans. Do you think he's going to get another shipment before Christmas? No chance. So he's going to sell all these out in two weeks, and now he's dead until next year. 
So what do you do? You just lay everybody off. You have no money. Yeah. And this is happening with everything. So I'm I'm like, Christmas is going to be, it's going to be an interesting, interesting turnout. And, you know, I think the other thing is everyone's optimistic in North America that like, oh, we always come through and we always, everything just kind of works out. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, they're running out of siding right now, but eventually they'll catch up and we'll get back to normal. I don't foresee that happening. I think it's going the other way around. Well, and and a lot of it is reliant on international markets and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of uncertainty in China right now and how that is going to trickle across. I mean, remember those memes when that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal? <laughs> yes. was, I, I can't even remember the situation, but a boat got wedged in there and how it messed <laughs> everything up. Yeah. It's like, really? There's only like one way in and out? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's a similar scenario, except like the boats arrive at these container locations and there's just no room for them to be unloaded. Yeah. There's just such a backlog and um, a lot of bureaucracy at the ports. And then, well, what happens if you just actually, the boats can't even be sent there and how is that going to affect people? And I'm concerned because a lot of these smaller operators took on debt during COVID. And if people mm-hmm. remember some of those debts, they come due, mm-hmm. right? Do you remember that? It was like a $40,000 small business loan. 60. And as long as you paid off 30000 you could keep the remaining ten, yep. And then they extended it to sixty, and said there's mm-hmm. another 10000 forgivable. Mm-hmm. So some people are like, this is sweet. Free I'm money. I'm borrow 60000 I pay back forty. I got 20000 cash. Well, you still kind of do owe the other forty. And Mm -hmm. if that comes at a point where regardless of the demand for your business, you don't have the supply to fill that demand, that is going to be a problem. It doesn't matter if you jack prices and all these things because there's a shortage of supply because then you have the fact of, well, what about job loss and all these things at the same time as rates are going up, at the same time as your debts are coming due. Everything is coming together. This is a massive mixing pot. You're talking about it. You see what I'm saying? The amount of debt that got extended during COVID is unprecedented. I've always had had concern about that. Yeah. Um, It's common. I'm telling you. But I think the personal and small business debt that was extended during COVID, believe it or not, is small compared to the flow, dollar flow of product around the world in a given day. Oh, 100%. Day, right? I, don't, like, I, don't so, think that, I don't think that's a driving factor. I think yeah. it's, it's the combination of all of these things yeah. that's contributing to it. I think a lot of small businesses are going to take it to the teeth because of that. those yeah. small things that they did. Again, they are a small portion of the economy, but they, they are also going to get taken over because they're, they're, they have all this debt that they're carrying. I, I mean, I, to be honest, I do with my small business. I took out all the money that the government offered. I'm thinking we're going to be able to get through it, but I'm already seeing the same thing. Like mm-hmm. the business we're in, we're fortunate where it, we don't necessarily need product, but I can see how it would get to a position where you aren't able to make that payment back. Yeah. People are going to have to start sourcing, sourcing very locally, which could be super cool, but let's be honest, we're not set up for that. Like you cannot get a $5 t-shirt made locally. You what? just can't. And see, right? this is, it's going to, it's going to lead into a serious inflation overall, I think in the long term. And I think long term, mm-hmm. it's going to be super beneficial for us as a country. Because I think it's going to be a reminder that we do need to do some stuff in-house and we do need to bring things yep. back. This would be controversial. I'll say it's like what Trump was screaming about when he was up. That we oh, need finally. To bring... took 17 episodes took, to get there. Yeah, yeah, the word, the word Neil Trump has Neil has just revealed Trump. himself <laughs> to be a Trump supporter. No, I didn't that, that's going to be the clip, oh, no, be the clip oh, that no. we're going to take. I, so I'm not necessarily saying that, but I am saying part of his policy of bringing the work back home and bringing business back home and production back home did have some merits, and I don't think people could see what was coming down the pipe. And I think you had something you want to say about vaccination too? No, oh, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> You're vaccinated? <laughs> uh, no, listen, I, I, I don't think the idea of we should try to produce more here domestically is something that I think a lot of people agree with intuitively, but then they also want the benefits of what they can order and online and where these $1. things are manufactured and all this. Um, you can't have it both ways and – It'll be interesting to this see. It's all Jack Ma's fault. Alibaba just screwed us. Yeah, that's such a cool site. It's, have have yeah. you ever done a deep dive on that site? Yeah, I've ordered all sorts of things for like 25 cents and I see it three to four years later. It's fun because it's like I forget that I ordered it because it's been so long and then a sweater shows up and I'm like, oh my God, I paid 26 cents for this sweater. It's Amazing. Yeah. I remember looking on there and you could buy multi-unit properties, prefab. Oh, no. Or like you could buy a motel and they would <laughs> ship you a motel in container crates, prefab. We should order one. The problem is, is they don't care about your local code, right? At all. No. So, but yeah, you could buy like a prefab motel or like an eight unit and stuff like that. I don't think oh, we, that, have but to, we have to do one of those. That would be, that'd be pretty sweet. I, I'd be in on that. Total digression. Yes. But while we're, we're, we're talking here, I want to talk to you because you were in 
well, not the news, but I don't know where people are, are listening to this from, but wherever you're at, always subscribe to the local business magazine or whatever that it might be. I'm sweating. But Neil was featured in All Nova Scotia. Yeah. Were you pulling punches in there? <laughs> we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but I meant no. to ask you about this, no. and here we go. No, we did. No, uh, honestly, I was. I, mean, I kind of went full political when they called because I did. This is the second time I've been. I've talked with them, and uh, nothing against them. Uh, good enough guy. I don't even remember what his name is. I've talked. I love all Nova Scotia. Yeah, it's... I love all Nova Scotia too because it's very hyper local and it gives a pretty raw, uncut idea of what's going on in, in your in your city. So I agree with you. You should be subscribed and you should follow whatever is your local your local medium because. Like CBC is very broad overview, only major big topics hit there. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff that wouldn't make necessarily national television that is seriously important on your day to day or things that you should know living in a city. Oh man, or a town. seeing new startups, development yeah. sites, who's doing what around the city. It's kind of like, uh, you know, it's the same, re- same thing people get out of LinkedIn, but imagine it being a, a you know, an actual news yeah, site. Much that more up to date. Like yeah, it's a daily yeah. thing, right? But for context, it was talking about the rent control. Yeah. And. I, I, I was going to have some quotes out or something like this to ask you about, but that you still felt optimistic that this was all going to be good. And then someone called you out on it today. I Did saw Did you that. see some response? Oh, yeah. Is it Mr. Adriano? Yeah, someone, <laughs> someone roasted me on there. Mis, um, misspelled, mispronounced Yeah, name. I saw that. I, I was laughing. I, I was going to respond back and then I couldn't. But anyway, so yeah, to give some context. So I have spoken to them before. Last time I spoke to them, I felt that what I was what I had said was very taken out of context and kind of used, not necessarily against me, but it, it caused some issues with the current relationships that I had with clients. Right. And, and then my general perception in the market, because I wasn't super whatever when I spoke with them, I was very free. I didn't really think about it. I was like, yeah, I'll just talk openly because that's how they said, like, let's chat openly. Mm-hmm. And I fell for that. Uh, so this second time. I don't I, think you were duped though. Like, but I understand what you mean. I think you said something like, oh, this is a product of some bad actors, I think was the thing. And it's like, oh, yeah. that, that sounded like it was directed at one person because of other articles they had had in there, but that wasn't your intent at all. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the way that the question was asked to me, I was it was more of a response to what they mm-hmm. said. Yeah. And then they sliced it out. But anyways, uh, so this time I was a little hesitant, but I said, you know what, I'll do it, but I'm going to stay very political when I do it. And so I had to be careful because I'm not going to go in there and say, oh my God, I think this is the worst. That's the worst because I knew that it was going to get sliced up. Uh, and like I said on the podcast, like, like this was about it, this article was about rent control, and it was asking me how it impacted my business, how it impacted my business moving forward. Uh, they see that I'm still acquiring property, and they said, "Well, mm-hmm. you said last time, due to the rent control, it's going to absolutely stifle your ability to go through this process." Um, and now you're kind of going and contradicting that. And so I was responding basically and saying that I don't disagree with the rent controls. I just don't think the percentages make any sense mm-hmm. because inflation and those things are outpacing it, and our expenses are greatly outpacing it. But I did say I'm going to have to change my business model, which is true, yep. just based on unit turnovers. Yeah, we talked a lot about that. Yep. And so, yeah, we really talked about it. So that's what I try to do. Again, it's funny. Like, again, when I see the article, it's like they take they take sentences <laughs> and they don't give you the whole background to what, it, what was said. And on the flip side, there was things that I thought I tried to push and be like, these are things that I think should get said, uh, like regarding the fact that I felt that a lot of the government policy was designed to benefit larger, bigger, top producing developers or whatever, yeah. that kind of got lost in the in the in the noise. And I don't know if that's because those guys don't want to offend the big developers because they want to be able to interview them and have them on there as well. But that that was it. So I wasn't trying to like I wasn't Because I to, had someone ask me about it. They're like, Whoa, Neil, what happened? I, I thought he'd have more more fire. Like I thought he'd be was more upset. He basically said it was perfectly fine. I'm like, yeah. well I know that's not how he feels and I, I no, and no, that, that wasn't a true reflection of how I feel, unfortunately, but I basically had to put my fire out because I knew who I was talking to, and I yeah. knew that if I spit fire, that they were going to slice it up and portray me to look like a bit of a crazy person. And I knew that's why they called, because they knew last time I was off the cuff, and so this time right. I was like, uh-uh, political nail because I'm not prepared to get roasted uh, on there. Well, and, and I, I think they do a phenomenal job, and I know that they – I think they also – are, are generally pretty neutral on it. I mean, I know I've yeah. written in responses to them to articles where I'm hot, yeah. right? <laughs> and, you know, they haven't published them and I'm probably better off for it. Jeez, <laughs> um, oh, you, you must know, have been real hot because I've said I, some sketchy shit and they've always reposted I, I, it. Yeah, the old like holding off on pressing the old send button. <laughs> um but what anyway. did what was the response that I received here? I'm gonna just pop this up while we're doing this. He just said uh, the guy felt that you did not quite understand what the government was doing, and I think realistically you do. You just maybe were biting your tongue. And interestingly, the guy yeah. raised some points to the point that you said that you made and wasn't included in there about that how this is effectively going to create two very different rental markets in in the city. There's going to be ultra luxury uh, for these individuals who have a 
you know the option to do high end new construction who also also now will also now have a provincial task force that'll help advance their, their approvals stuff. Yep. and then there's smaller landlords who will be reduced to bare bones maintenance on older stock and you're going to have really rough housing and really nice housing. That's what they're essentially creating through this, yeah. um, which is going to be difficult to navigate and not good for the market. But people don't want to understand that. They can only see about two inches in front of their face. Yeah. So, so yeah. Be it, but. Yeah, he said, yeah, exactly. It's While I admire Mr. Adriano's optimism, I'm not Mr. sure. Mr. Adriano. <laughs> I'm not sure he grasps what the government is doing. Well- Paul, I do grasp what the government is doing, and unfortunately, I couldn't speak my mind due to the fact that I was being interviewed in a place that I knew it wouldn't all make it out. If it was a video, if they, if we had to do a sit-down video interview, I would have said everything uh, because I knew then the whole video would go out. But in this case, where I know it's going to get sliced up, I couldn't say it. Uh, I 100% agree. Like he said, now, basically, the government owns these buildings because we can't do what we want. Uh, he, so it's going to be interesting to see how safety and insurance issues impact the situation. Uh, and I that's what we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. We said, like, these are... Nah. 100%. These buildings, it was all yeah. fun and games when it was for a year because it was like, all right, fine, that makes sense. But now they're doing it like three, four years. They've now created that extension. That's where it becomes like legitimately deferred maintenance actually starts to take place. It is not, it is a 2% cap rate. It is also a two and a half year stop work order. Yeah. That's exactly. what it is. It's a two and a half year stop work order. And people may not like that, but I mean, you said this before and- People will have their opinions on this regardless, so we're not going to change anyone's minds here, unfortunately. But the people who just don't want to hear the logic of the other side is frustrating. It's like you can get mad at the messenger all you want. We're just telling you factually as people who operate in that space and who know the numbers that this is the reality of one thing causing another. And what's that thing you say when you're like, you know, do you want a friend that tells you you look great or a friend that tells you you've got a booger on your face? Right, like, you know, we're just trying to tell you what we know is going to be happening. And there's a reason that all of the people in the industry think it's going to be a problem. And the perception is that it's just all greed-based and, oh, my gosh, well, they're just upset because they can't raise their profit margins and then they make up all these imaginary things. But this is just Can't buy new fancy cars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fancy um, cars. Di- changing changing lanes here. No pun let's intended. Digress. Before we go there, I just want to say one thing. Thanks to Paul for responding to what I what I was posted on there for. Yeah, and I want to say thanks to everyone who's also responded to both Chandler and I. We were actually getting a tremendous amount of response from you guys in direct messages, emails, texts. Yeah, and it's huge. We love it. We appreciate it. And like Chandler just said, we want you guys to tell us the honest to God truth. If if it's if there's something we said or something you don't like or something we need to improve. Tell us. We'd much rather hear that than purely just you You tell us it's great, even though you might not think it actually is. So, But you guys have been amazing. Everyone's being super supportive. So it's, it's exciting for us. We're, we're really enjoying it. And yeah. uh, we're trying our best to, to get out content that's going to be good for you guys. And you can actually benefit and, and learn something and, and kind of grow from it. Yeah. And thanks to a couple of you out there who have actually uh, shared it to some people and tagged some people and told them to check it out. That's if huge. you can do that more. Man, I appreciate it. It takes like two seconds to fire this thing up on whatever platform you're at, but it makes a, a world of difference uh, on our back end side of things. But Chandler will start wearing more costumes if you guys share it more yeah, often. Yeah, yeah. That was actually a pretty pretty big hit. Yeah. Um, so I didn't hear your car rolling today. Do you have an engine <laughs> problem, Neil? I have to get a louder exhaust. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Um, this is a sticking point for us because we joke about vehicles all the time. And someone asked us. someone asked us specifically about fancy vehicles the other day. Yes. And yeah, we, actually, it's true. A new agent did ask us, with both of us there, uh, our take on new vehicles. Or not a new vehicle, sorry. Uh, we'll say luxury cars versus, I guess, yeah, whatever is considered that. So Chandler and I vary on this. I think in this business specifically, and I don't mean rental housing, I mean being a real estate agent, I think it makes sense to have a car that is considered to be like a luxury vehicle. Now, I don't necessarily think that it needs to be $150,000 luxury vehicle, but I think slightly above the general consumer vehicle is important for the simple fact of perception of like success and and like where your business achieves that. Because in this business, it's very important to basically scream your successes from the rooftops, show that you're killing it. And I found even myself when I got started in buying real estate before I had my license, I remember a few agents pulled up and unfortunately, right off the hop, there was a little bit of judgment if they pulled up in something that I didn't perceive as a, as a top vehicle. And I think it was because I knew that a lot of big agents 
do drive around in certain types of vehicles. So when someone pulled up in a not-so-top vehicle, I felt that way. And also to put this in, in context, we can just give give our vehicles. So Chandler, where do you drive? A uh, really nice, reliable 2019 Toyota RAV4. Yes. Very nice. Black. Black on black. Black on black. And then me on the flip side, uh, I drive <laughs> – I feel like an idiot saying this. But I drive a Mercedes and it's white. Mm-hmm. It is loud. That part is not has nothing to do with the business. That's my own personal <laughs> personal desires. But yeah, so I drive a white Mercedes. I actually think that my car is too far gone. I think my car is actually stupid on the fancy car side of things. I think like the prime optimal vehicle was like a Lexus, which I had before. Again, I bought this car again not for the business. I bought this for a personal desire. So, but yeah, so that that's what we drive, and so that's my thing. Is I think I, I've told a lot of new agents when he asked this question, I said, you know what, I think it's worthwhile for you to upgrade into something that looks a little bit more. Flashy because I there's an aspect of assumed professionalism and I feel that a lot of people want to associate themselves and be like, yeah, this guy represents me or this guy works for me or this girl represents me. You I understand I mean? the logic. Like you want the person who is working for you to be accomplished in what they're doing and rightly or wrongly, we associate having a nice car with a certain level of accomplishment or, or expertise. Yeah. The challenge is, and you kind of were hinting about it, it depends on the context. When we're listing... A million dollar property. Yeah. Maybe we look, dress, act, talk, drive some different way. Yeah. But we also list other properties, you know, perhaps more blue collar people who, you know, maybe it's it's a lower priced product and they're a bit more humble in, you know, their 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 finances and they can find it a bit offensive when you roll up there in your white Mercedes and it might alienate them. So my whole thing is the vehicle that I drive and the way I dress and the way I act isn't to make myself feel good. It's to make other people feel good. I understand this idea of, you know, dress for the job you want, but my whole thing is like present for, you know, the relationship you want to have. And some people don't feel comfortable with that. And, you know, as you say, what's it? Don't buy a Nissan. Don't learn how to buy a Nissan. Or what is it? What's your? <laughs> I, we're going to make you say this every three episodes. I know. Don't take advice on how to buy a Rolls Royce from somebody that drives a Toyota Corolla. Okay. Well, what happens though? Like if someone says, I want to buy a Toyota Corolla though, I can't take advice from you because you're driving a Rolls Royce. You can't relate to what I'm trying to go through or I am going through. But see, I, I disagree because I feel like it goes the other way. Like I think I think there, somebody can have insight on how to – buy something like that, even though they, they drive the, the, let's say, the more expensive vehicle. Again, like I don't I don't think it's a mandatory item. I think it's more of a, like, it's part of it. And I, I agree with what you're saying, except I just think on a majority basis, like if I took 100 people and, and then made them pick on which agent purely based on vehicle, yeah. of the 100, I would say more than 50 would pick based on the fact, that the, on the fancier vehicle. Yeah, it depends if you're talking, like, a fancy vehicle and some hoopty. Like when I first got into the business, I was driving a busted old Sonata, and like there's nothing wrong with Sonatas, but like this thing had 230 thousand kilometers on it. Yeah, like it was it was rough, and it got to the point where I was like, man, I've got to upgrade to something else. From a perception, you know, because I also want people to feel comfortable when I'm selling their million plus dollar home that I'm someone who understands that product, knows people who would buy that sort of product, um, and operates in that world, if you will. So I understand your point to give them peace of mind just the same as you'd give peace of mind to someone who maybe has a more modest budget. I guess it's like, where do you draw the line? A hundred percent. I agree with you on that. And again, I don't like, for me, I don't really, there's nothing against any of those cars. They're all great vehicles. I drove a cruise when I started in the business. That's actually, my turning point was I pulled up to a million dollar lakefront house cold lead yeah. in my cruise and they pulled up in some big giant SUV luxury thing like a yeah. whatever it was some $100,000 SUV and I could see the immediate look on their face right I could just see it as I pulled down the driveway and the first couple questions were questioning basically what I knew and what I was capable of doing like mm-hmm. immediately yeah totally and I can't help but believe that the fact that I pulled up in a cruise to that is what immediately set them on a bit of a concerned path right and so from that, that's literally that that appointment happened, and then within like a couple of weeks, I had to Lexus because I was like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be questioned on something like that. That's so easily controlled by me. Again, and I wouldn't buy again. I'm not going to go out and buy a brand new Lexus and flex on someone. I'll go out and buy one that's uh, a few years old because then they can also kind of stomach in their head. They're like, okay, like it's probably not a brand new car. It's not like they're going out and being super ostentatious. Again, the car that I have now is too far, too far. That's past the line. I've gone past the line <laughs> with the vehicle that I drive now. But gotta reel it in. Yes, exactly. But. 
it uh, I think there's there is a level of it. But again, that's it, it's just a, it's a, a general business thing. I don't agree that you have to do it. But I think again, if we took a hundred people and they picked pure, purely based on the vehicle sitting there, they do that. Now, we've actually grown our business on a different scale of we we sell a certain amount of knowledge with our with our with our business, <clears throat> and yep. I think that's more actually what's growing our businesses. But I think it, it plays a factor still. I also I'm sitting here thinking about this because I don't really talk or, or get asked about this a lot. But if I'm being honest with myself, I kind of like the fact. Under maybe assuming. I'm a bit maybe I'm a bit contrarian by nature. I think if I'm being honest, right? Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that people I don't have the nicest office. Yeah. You may or may not know that. I don't have the nicest it's office. Nice mine. <laughs> and I probably have one of the lesser vehicles on our lot at any time at, at the office. Yeah. And I sort of like the fact that oh, I don't do what other people do. You know, yeah. like I, I dress in a hoodie and blah, 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 blah. And I guess if I'm being honest, like I said, it is a bit of a shtick maybe that yeah. I should probably get over um, and find a, a better balance because I, I, your point's not lost on me. I think it does matter a bit. And I do think that Toyota RAV4 is just a really nice vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a Toyota sponsorship out of this. It's a yeah. great it's a great vehicle. I'm in on that. But maybe, maybe I do need to upgrade it because every now and again, I go through that as well where it's like, okay. And we just moved offices, right? And people are just caking out their offices in a major way. I don't know last time you walked around. It's insanity. It's ridiculous. I've never seen like the mini the bar mini fridge per square footage there is like <laughs> the, unsurpassed. The humidor per square footage. Oh my god. We right? we've, mini fridges are old news now. It's like it's, yeah. humidor wine fridge combinations. Yeah, it's been a good year in real estate. <laughs> So people are doing some crazy things. And I'm like, I don't know. I guess I'll just move my desk from the other office. And I took a sofa from at home. <laughs> but every now and again, I'm like, all right, I should respect my business enough to invest in a space that's inspiring and whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't need a humidor and granite countertops to feel inspired in my workspace, but I think it is important to have a good workspace. And, you know, maybe my vehicle is something that, that needs to upgrade. We'll see. I don't know. Again, it's it's just I think it just kind of plays into it a little bit. And I, there is a fine line of going too far. And you know another thing, like just to finish it off is when I had the Lexus, I had a 2015 Lexus IS250. I got compliments on that left, right, and center. Everyone loved it. Clients would want to go in it. Everyone used to talk about the car. And all, like I'd say, honestly, 80 percent of my clients would make a comment positively. Not getting that anymore. And I, yeah, exactly. Now <laughs> that, that white thing. Now that I have the Mercedes, nobody makes a comment. Yeah. Nobody compliments the car. Nobody wants to talk about it. If anything, a few of my clients, have they do make the comments. Like I had a few listings and like, if I knew you're driving that, I probably would have wanted to sign you for less. Or a few mm-hmm. guys like, you're making all the money in these deals. I'm mm-hmm. not making anything. A hundred percent. So, and those are the guys that are speaking out. So I know that the other 80% are probably thinking it in their head and yep. they're not saying it. Whereas when I had yep. the Lexus, again, it was a used, a little bit older Lexus, but it was still nice and clean and I kept it nice. Everyone loved it because they could, they could, in their head, they can, I think that's something that's attainable. Yeah. You can look them up. They're 30, 40 K. It's really not that crazy of a vehicle. It would have been maybe, it's maybe five, 10 grand more than a Camry. Like it wasn't anything nuts. So huge. I got a huge respect on that vehicle. The current one now, again, I, there's a line and I've crossed it. And, but again, I'm not, I, I didn't buy the car for the business. I didn't buy the car for anybody else. I bought the car for myself. So I don't really care. And did uh, the gold chain come with the car or that's <sighs> secondary? Gift from my grandmother. <laughs> oh, here we Gift go. Gift from my grandmother, Chandler. Your Thank you very much. My, <laughs> she used to own a jewelry store. Oh, so nice. yes. <laughs> And she is now passed. So <laughs> watch on. yourself. Okay. Oh man. Anyways, it's lovely. It's lovely. Yeah. But uh, that's that's where I'm at with the car thing. On that same note, though, it's same with the dressing up. Yeah. I'm slowly also fading out of dressing up, but I I was also it's it's also for me it was also kind of like a respect thing for my client. Mm-hmm. And I just again I I can't help but remember myself when I started looking for real estate before I had my license. And I don't think I'm an overjudgmental person, but I just. It was just something that got backlogged. Like, it didn't mean I wasn't going to work with you, but it just, mm-hmm. like, if somebody pulls up in, in a t-shirt and shorts, I couldn't help but be like, does this guy even give a fuck? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. We have to bleep that out. But does this guy even care that I'm here? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was, and and so it just, it, it kind of gave me that feel. So I always try my best to make an effort to make sure that I'm I'm suiting up to go and see someone. Even if I just have, like, one appointment in the day, mm-hmm. I'm I'm throwing a suit on for the day. For that one appointment, because I want them to feel that I respect and am prepared to be there. Again, I don't. It doesn't have a, a huge impact, but I think it has a little bit. And, and you know what's funny is nowadays, I think it's, it's we're going the other way. It's like 
every yeah. office. It mm-hmm. used to be everyone used to go to the office and dress clothes. Now you go to like Google and everyone makes 500K a year and they're all walking around in t-shirt and shorts. Yeah, which I think is like intentionally contrarian. Like when Mark Zuckerberg goes out there in a blue zip-up hoodie, like some of that is is playing a role, right? Yeah. And I did the same thing when I first got my license. I, you know, cut my hair short. I, you know, bought a bunch of cheap suits and, and colorful yeah. ties. And I was doing that for a while. And then every time my clients, because I dealt with people from my sphere, they're showing up in in sweats and whatever they're comfortable in. So yeah. I slowly over time just kind of dressed how I would dress normally. But um, people kind of laugh in the office because they see me one way. Um, but when I go out and meet clients, I dress up a little bit more than, yeah. than I do normally, depending on the client. Because again, I feel it's like, it's not for me, Yeah. right? Like I'm doing it for the comfort of them. Yeah. So if that makes them feel more comfortable, you know, it, it's generational thing too, yeah. right? Like when I'm sitting down with an elderly person in their 80s. Yeah, you're suiting up. I'm suiting up because it makes them feel more comfortable. Yeah. And I don't mind putting a little inconvenience in my life to make someone else feel more comfortable. Yeah. Everyone's so selfish and self-absorbed nowadays that they're all like, well, I'm not doing something for someone else. If they're not comfortable with it, so be it. Like, yeah. No, like it takes a little effort to make someone else feel more comfortable. So I do that for some people. But on the flip side, some folks feel more comfortable when I'm dressed down a little bit. Yeah. And I do like the idea of being, okay, we're content forward, right? That's what we want to do with this podcast. That's what I want to do with life is like it's content, it's quality forward. Yeah. And the rest is kind of, decorative, but. 100%. You're so, looking fresh today. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. I uh, ran out of hoodies. My hoodie's in the <laughs> in the wash. So here you go. Anyways. Yeah. So that's that's where I'm at. I begin. I'd be curious if someone wants to give us some comments back on what they think about this stuff. Yeah. Especially if you're not like an agent, you're just a consumer. Let us know like what your thoughts are in in the cars and, and, and all the fancy crap in the show, uh, how you think it impacts your thing. And try and think objectively. Don't just be like, you're stupid because you bought an expensive car or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, try and actually give us like an honest perspective of like when I get to a showing and they pull up, how does that make me feel? Yeah. We'll do a poll. We should do a poll. My lease is almost up. Do I upgrade the RAV4? We're going to get – always getting like something crazy like a Range Rover or some crazy huge thing. Yeah. Just come back and escalate. <laughs> um, well, that was interesting because when we were talking with our, our buddy about this and he was picking our brains because he knows – that we do things differently as yes. much as we, you know, have so many things in common and we don't want this always just be like an echo chamber in here. But he asked you and then he asked me because he knew that we had very differing opinions on this, yep. which got us thinking about a couple other things that we disagree on. Yep. And one of them that I talked about when I was outlining the refinance that I just went through on a property so then I mentioned that I did all the renovations out of pocket. Yes. And you have said before on this podcast, you should never do the renovations out of pocket. You should always do it with borrowed funds. Yes. And I agree with that. If it's standard lending, uh, institutional money, I'm less inclined to private money. I've never taken a dime of private money. I've done VTBs. That's not private money. Though. I've never done quote unquote private hard money lending uh, for any of my properties, but I know you have. A lot. Yeah, so almost all of it. Tell us why you've done that and why you believe in it, and would you do it now if you didn't have to? I just took a big, deep breath here to get ready for this one. Okay. So, yes, you haven't done it. Here's here's kind of my thing. So, yeah, exactly what Chandler's saying is he's bought with more conventional loans, and then he spent the money to renovate. Now we're doing renovations that are quite typically quite expensive because it's multiplied by units. So even if it's thirty thousand. Yeah, it's an eight unit. It's going to cost you $250,000 to get that thing turned over. When I got started, which was only a couple of years ago, really, in buying these actual buildings, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, I don't have a quarter million dollars of cash available at my resource to just do something like that. And additionally, like a lot of these buildings are under-rented and there's issues with them. A lot of banks might not necessarily do 25% down or, or anything like that. And so you can't necessarily come up with 35 to 50% of a building's value. Private lenders will look past a lot of these things as long as you provide them with basically a strong plan of how you're going to take their money, turn it into what it needs to be, and then get them paid back. So do you do that for both some of the down payment or just for the renovation, both? Well, so here's the thing. So I use it for almost everything, depending on what it is. So like to get, again, to get started, they'll dealing with vendor take backs. So on buying, well, some banks won't go, a lot of banks won't go in second place to a vendor take back, like really none. And, or some of them won't even entertain any vendor take back, even in like second place. 
They say if we're in first, you're, you can't put somebody in second behind us. And just, just, just to recap for some people, so obviously the purchase is 100%. In a lot of cases, the bank is going to require some form of 25% down. So if you as the buyer put down 15, for example, the seller could hold a note for the other 10%, kind of like an IOU. And that's what we're referring to as a vendor take back. Not all banks like that because they're saying, no, no, we want you to have 25% in. And you're basically saying that you only have 15% in. And worse than that, if we have to foreclose on you, there's someone else over here chomping at the bit, trying to foreclose on you to get their piece of the pie. And the position rank, first position, second position, third position, is kind of who gets paid out first. So the bank always wants to be in first position. The vendor has to understand they're typically going to be in second position, but sometimes, depending on the structure of the deal, they want to be in first position. And if they're in first position, no institutional conventional lender is going to touch you because exactly. uh, they're, they're not going to be in second position Taking to anyone to be other than themselves. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, that right there, like there's so many little things that I'm going to go over that impacts it. I, I attribute hundred percent of my growth today to the fact that I was able to utilize private lending to the way I did. And I don't intend to keep using it. I'm slowly working my way out of it and getting them paid out, but it allowed me to get in where I was able to get vendor take backs, potentially put the vendor in first place if they were, that was the requirement and then I'd get the loan to to cover the rest of the building. They always want to see some money in as well, but they're willing to go to higher LTVs. Uh, like 85-15, 90-10? 85 usually. And then on top of that, they will cover a good portion of the reno, like more like 85% of the reno. And the big thing you need to understand, like, yeah, the money's 10 12%, but if you factor that into your budget, right? Like you have your budget, okay, it's a million dollars for the buy, 500000 for the reno. So let's say you're borrowing around a million and a half bucks. You know, it's going to take you a year to do it. 10%, you're going to spend 150 k on interest. You throw that in your budget, like include that in your budget. They'll even help to kind of finance and cover it. Like some of them will either do an interest reserve or they'll, they'll build it in there. So you kind of, when you get your draws, it's already built into the fact that right. a portion of it goes yep. back, right? So that allowed me to grow rapidly and get the money because financing is the hardest part on these when you're getting started. 100%. And so they allow me to do it. The other thing is, is their pace. Like when you deal with some of these other more conventional conventional lenders, I need a draw. They're going to want to send in an appraiser. It's going to mm-hmm. take the appraiser a couple mm-hmm. days, if not a week, to get everything turned around. Then it's going to take them a couple days. They might have some questions. It goes back and forth. You're not seeing money for two weeks from the day that you asked for it. Maybe a week if things are bang on, but two weeks. Honestly, two weeks. Private lender, you can build a relationship with them. They'll just send out one of their own guys, or you get to a relationship where you don't even need that. You can send them pictures. They'll have the money with you in 24 hours or same day. I've messaged my private lender 10 a.m. in the morning. 3 p.m. the money's in my account, right? So when you're in a pinch, like this stuff gets stressful, right? Like when when we started, I know when I started, I was like scraping at negative. Like I had no money. I was, every single dime was going to these buildings. Yeah. To be able to get a a, a draw like that, knowing that I had like a bunch of payments coming out the next day and all that was extremely important to being able to keep operating and growing the business uh, and going forward. And, and they will, the other thing is they can be super flexible. So like right now I was making a purchase and I couldn't get my refinance takeout completed in time to close on the next property. They were able to provide a bridge loan and like two days before closing, I'm able to call them. They gave me the bridge. No problem. Yes, it's expensive. I'm going to pay percentage and fees to get the money. I'm going to pay the broker fees to get the money. And then I'm going to have to pay them fees to close it out. So it cost me $35,000, but the opportunity cost of losing that deal or my deposit or all the other items. Right. Way, way, way more. So that, that aspect, as long as you budget it in and you understand what it's going to cost you, then I think it's, it's an amazing opportunity to go up. If you don't have to use it though, then there'd be no reason to use it. Like there's no, don't pay 12% interest just because like it's the easy button. Yeah, yeah. Pay necessity. it because there's a, a value, like there's a necessity yeah. there. Yeah. Right? I guess one of the things, and, and I, I totally agree with you. And in hindsight, I wish I had used private money early on. My concern always was I didn't trust my other income enough to carry that private money yeah. if need be. And where... Now, very fortunate that I can kind of float a lot of these renovations just out of pocket and avoid that carrying cost. On the flip side, you're very fortunate that you have other sources of income where you can cash flow at least to cover the the debt servicing on there, or at least, again, it's built into the loan that's like, okay, we're advancing you this $50,000 and, you know, $7,000 of that is essentially coming back to them in the form of an interest installment payment. Yeah. But- it's a bit different when someone has no other cash flow coming in whatsoever. 
hundred percent. Right? And that's what I warn a lot of people because a lot of a lot of my my friends and colleagues ask me like, how in the world are you doing this? And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm making that fifteen thousand dollar a month payment out of my own pocket uh, every month, and that was super super hard. And that's what I mean. When I, the first mm-hmm. couple that I did, it was stressful. As, all hell. Like I was scraping by to make those payments every month and, and I had to get to that point. So yeah, now I'm fortunate it's much easier and I'm, I'm slowly closing out all the private money. But it, that's why I say, if you're going to do it, you need to run it in your budget. You need to run those numbers and you say, okay, I'm prepared to pay five grand a month for those six months or 10 months and always go over. Like you say, you're going to be doing your renovation in six months. Okay, cool. So 12 months, you're going to be doing your renovation. Like that's how you need to budget it. And again, you can work with the bank. These guys, these private lenders know what you're doing. If you come to them with a strong plan, They'll respect what you're what you're bringing them, and they'll work with you. So if you again, if you say, "Look, I'm borrowing 500 for rental. Let's make it 600." Then when you give me my draws, I'm covered for my mm-hmm. my interest. Right. The the biggest item is you need to show them that there's there's equity and value in that building, right? And that's where these as complete appraisals come in. Like whenever I get an appraisal on a building, I always get the as complete done right there at the start, even though I know in 12 months there's a good chance that it's going to be a different number than what they're giving me there. It gives me a lot of strength to show that there is an upside on the building today, even if it's not as much as what I truly believe. Yeah. As long as it's enough to help show the bank that they have some sort of way out of this thing. Yeah, you're selling them on the exit strategy, which is what we talk about so much, is how to get out from underneath yeah. this, be it the original loan, the short-term money, or what have you. But they also, from their perspective, they want to get off the deal as yes. quickly as they can. They want to be paid on, they want to get off the deal. The other yeah. advantage you have in this, why this wasn't a fit for me, is because you've got this system in place through your contracting company that you can prepare a package and budget probably and and offer that to them as a plan better than most people would be able to do. It's not just as simple as, well, I'm just going to go out and get, you know, $500,000 in private money. Yeah. If someone will give that to you with no plan, I'd be extra concerned about that. But if they give it to you <laughs> and, and you don't have a plan, um, that, that could get really dicey in a hurry. I don't own a contracting company and it yeah. took a while for me to build up a team of people who... I felt I could trust and I have them now where I'd be in a better position to say, okay, here is the actual expense and draw schedule for the length of the project. I kind of more shoot from the hip with some of my renos. So it takes a little while to find out, all right, what exactly are we per unit? What are we doing material-wise on each one? And of course, things change. And I was always concerned of having someone accountable to be accountable to that someone stay, you know, that it stays on a budget and um, that it's timely because there's a lot of unpredictability in there. And when you don't have your own contractors or your own company, it's hard to model that out. hundred percent. I, I agree. I, part of me disagrees to be honest with you. And the only reason, like, I don't want people to think that they can't do this unless they have their own contracting company and a cash flow of $15,000 a month and all that. Cause I don't think that's true. I think it can be done. It's a little more difficult, but even doing the contracting and having the contracting company, my first reno, I under budgeted by 200 K, <laughs> which was 40%. Just I just missed by, by 40%. And that's even having my own contracting company, my own guys doing a lot of the work. So like, you're still going to make those mistakes and that's kind of part of it. The nice thing, again, with a private lender, so you miss by 200K, you can go to them and explain that. Again, if you can show that the ads complete value is there and where the money's going and that you're actually getting the work done, they will extend it to you. I'm doing the same thing on another project, one of my original projects that I bought with a not a private lender. It's, it was a construction bank, but it's at 4% and they have construction monitors and this and that. And so I screwed up budgeting. Mm-hmm. I spent the last three and a half months going back and forth trying to get a draw out of them. And right. they're like, they want to see all these things and they're breaking it all down and they're going on and on and on. I just ended up finishing the whole project out of pocket. This is the other reason. And I'm refinancing now and I never yeah. got a draw. And it's interesting to hear that you had that experience with a conventional lender as opposed to a private lender because that was even why I don't love rolling them into my conventional mortgages either. Yeah. Because I don't know if you've ever had, well, of course you have at this point, but you fill out those damn financial summaries every year yep. for these lenders yep. and all this stuff. And it's the same reason that going through CMHC is a headache. They're on you. And it's good in the sense that it makes you better accountable and better organized. But sometimes you can't rationalize with these people. And if you don't get it right the first time, it's hard to go back to that well and explain why you need more money from them. And as soon as they start questioning it, they start shutting down. They're they're also going to charge you fees and all of this and you get delays and your contractor is going to want to get paid regardless as they should. So this is why I've sort of been resistant to doing it and I haven't needed to, but it has certainly stifled my growth. I'm sure I could have done things a lot quicker. Changing now where we don't have as much certainty out there in the market with timelines. This was my other thought is like, oh my gosh, what if something goes sideways and I can't get to my exit strategy? I can't get to my as complete in the 12 months because 12 months turns to 18 months really easily. And with what's going on in the world right now, 
Yeah. If you can't get those tubs, if you can't get this, if you can't get the tenants out of that 18 months could be two and a half years. Yeah. That's a long time to carry that money. Yeah. And that, so that's a, that's, that's a big thing to consider now. So again, when I first started doing it, I was buying vacant buildings that I knew I could turn over in a certain period of time. Again, I missed all my timelines. So I had to do renewals. Uh, I under budgeted a bunch of times. So I lost, I don't even want to know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest that I should have, that it was my screw ups on timelines and budgets. Mm -hmm. And now where I'm facing, where we're facing this new rules that has impacted that. My bigger thing now too is they do interest only, which makes it a little bit better. Um, and unfor- as unfortunate as it is, basically I look at it now with some of these buildings that I bought recently on private money. Well, I my interest only payments five grand. The building brings in six. So by the time I pay all my bills, it basically just covers it and I'm going to have to float that. Mm-hmm. It sucks, but it's kind of part of the game. I know that if I want to grow at the pace that I'm growing at, I have to work with these guys because regular banks just aren't going to step in and or they won't do the, let's say, creative style lending that I'm utilizing to get some of these places because I am big on vendor take backs. Again, I... My first three or four places all had vendor take backs. Like I, I didn't have the cash to do it. Like I, I always joke. I mean, I'll say it, Spencer Ave. I ended up technically buying that entire street effectively without a dime out of my pocket. Yeah, it's crazy. Like that. It's that crazy. sounds nuts. And I mean, we maybe dive into this later on. But I had to do. That some should be cl- your unpacking one day. Yeah, like, I'll, I'll go over that one day and unpack the whole thing and how I did that. But that, and again, I wouldn't be able to do it with any other lender because any other lender would have looked at it and seen what I was doing. And be like, no chance. Mm-hmm. Versus I created this package and plan and showed it to the private. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. They were nervous. They told me. They told me after I was done. They were like, we thought you were going to you were gonna go belly up on this. But now that I've proven it, like it worked out really well. And now they're willing to work with me more. But that's that's the thing. Like they, you can actually, I find you could actually talk to them. And the pace is there. And so you can kind of work with the numbers. And, and they'll, they'll make it happen. And also the other thing I think a lot of people forget. These guys are not in the business of taking your real estate. They're really not. I know. Yeah. Like everyone's told, like all private lender, like they're going to they're gonna foreclose on you. They do not want to foreclose on you. Like they're going to threaten you that they're going to so that you pay your bills uh, and or do your renewals or whatever, but they do not want your property. Like they, they don't want that business. Like there's, I know so many people that have been dragging on for years, not even making payments and Mm -hmm. they still haven't lost their property. I'm not suggesting that you do that, but the private lender does not want that property back. Well, why would they when the property doesn't make money, but they can make 12% on the interest? Exactly. Right? Like they'd rather, a, they'd rather try and business. help you find someone yeah. to, to step in. Like that's, I see a lot of them, they'll try and find, like even the private lender will call me sometimes and be like, hey, like we have this client that's struggling with this place. Do you want to take it over and finish it off? Right? Because they'd rather see someone step in that, that can finish mm-hmm. it and, and get it closed out and get everyone's money back than closing on the property that's half finished or isn't worth what it's what they're into it for, all those kinds of things. So- you can work with them. Again, this is, again, I know we said in like, I think it was last episode that I said the bank's not your friend, but you can, the private lender, it's a business. You guys are working together as partners more so than just they're giving you money and they're telling you that we want to screw you. Yeah. Every now and again, I have someone approach me and they've come into some sort of windfall or, or they've got access to capital and they're like, oh, I want to get into real estate sort of blah, blah, blah. But I can tell they're not really in it. And I tell them, lend the money. Exactly. If you want to be involved in real estate and be very arm's length, yeah. and be very transactional, Lend the money. Do it through because, a broker. Oh, man. Yeah, do it, do it through a broker um, because there's things like, you know, the the lender can have a life insurance policy that pays you out and all, all these sort of things. If you go through the proper avenue, it's not like meeting a guy with a briefcase full of money. It's, it's very, you know, organized and, and accountable. But there are people that I know that have just access to 2% line of credits. And yeah. so they max out a 2% line of credit and lend it out at 10% plus a 4% fee. Yeah. Right? So their effective rate is is quite a bit higher and they just, they make their minimum interest payments while someone else pays them a lot more. It's a pretty good return for someone who might have access to that and is thinking, well, I like the idea of investing in real estate, but I don't necessarily want to be a landlord property manager. Yeah. Be a money lender. It's, it's pretty good. That's, that's big business. That's something we can also talk about another time, just how a broker handles that, how they basically will help you lend your money out. So you're secured, all the contracts are legit and legal. So you're literally giving an actual mortgage, just the same as any other bank. You're giving an actual mortgage. So you're covered in, in a lot of ways. Again, things can still take place where you might actually have to foreclose on a property and it could be worth less than what you guys are hoping. But in general, they have a lot of systems in place to help cover you and, and make it a legitimate thing. And on average, they get paid back. Like there's more that get paid back yeah. than, than, than than default. So yeah, it's um, it's interesting how many different ways you can make money through real estate without even owning the real estate. Another one is finders fees and assignments. Yeah. And we've been talking a bit about those lately because as soon as you're in, this is the greatest thing about kind of like getting into it and getting your feet wet and buying a property here and there is that all of a sudden people start to 
know you're looking as a buyer and start sending deals across your desk. Yeah. And some of them are very smart and they say, I already have the deal. I'll you just need to pay me out you this either by way of an assignment or a finder's fee. I know you're more big on assignments yeah. and I like assignments perfectly fine too, but I also like finder's fees. I mean, anytime I talk to someone, they're like, oh, I manage this many properties, right? For, you know, just some old dude with like a truck with a plow with the front, but turns out he manages 1500 units across the city. Yeah. I'm always <laughs> yeah. like, hey man, you bring me a building, you tell me what you want to get paid yeah. and we'll make it happen. Yeah. Um, that's a finder's fee. Yeah. Right. And any of those, anyone out yeah, there listening, listening. <laughs> that happens to know of a building and you can't put it together, you want to make some scratch off it because there's going to be other deals come along. You don't want to sit on something and get nothing out of it. You can get a finder's fee, which effectively you connect A with B and you have an agreement that there is going to be a fee paid to you by the buyer cash in pocket if, if that deal goes together. Take it um, to Chandler. Then whenever he offers you as a finder's fee, bring it to me and I'll double it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um no, don't. It, but yes, actually call. In all seriousness, if you guys do have something, definitely call us. We can we can both offer you a finder's fee. But it's um, an interesting way. To pe- people are like, right, how can I make money in real estate? There's another little angle. Well, so right? here's here's the even more interesting one as well. So if that's how finder's fees work, assignments very similar, uh, a little bit different, and you do assume a little bit more risk in doing so. But a lot of times, there's also an opportunity to increase the amount of money that you make. Totally. So on a finder's fee, you might get a flat fee of twenty, thirty, forty, maybe fifty thousand dollars. If that, like, I, I find like you know, if it, if it's pre-existing old stock, like. 500 a door, 1,000 bucks a door, exactly. right? Like so on a 12 unit? 12 grand. 12 grand, six grand, 12 grand, depending on what it is. Yeah. Um, and depending on how good the deal is. Yeah. Right? Which is nothing to nothing to balk at. If, if you can't buy that property, you know, or if you happen to come across something in your daily life, like, man, I can't buy this, but let's see, 18 units. I can make 18,000 bucks off this by one phone call. It's not bad. But an assignment. An assignment, you can make a substantially larger amount of money for the simple fact that as long as the property can appraise to cover that amount, the person purchasing can take a loan against that assignment value, which means it's less out of their pocket. So for example, myself this year, I've paid out almost $250,000 in assignment fees to buy some of these properties. And that's be- and I'm not feeling the pain in the sense of like, I have to pay out 250 grand cash. I only had to pay out 50 grand because I only had to pay about 20, 25% of that. Yeah, and it's 800 bucks a month. Okay. So, and the, so the way that works is, let's say you did find this 12 unit and they're asking a million bucks and you think, you call Chandler and he says, I'm willing to pay 1.2 million. Or you tell him it's 1.2 and he says, I'll pay that. You can put it under contract at a million bucks, then redo a new contract between yourself and Chandler for 1.2 million. Now you're not getting paid until that deal closes mm-hmm. and you're assuming the risk because on closing day, if Chandler for some reason doesn't show up with $1.2 million. You better have a million bucks to close yeah, that. Thing. That seller doesn't yep. give a crap. The seller only signed with you for a million bucks. So he's going after you for a million bucks. You're going to have a deposit in. And if you don't do it, he can sue you for all for all that stuff and the damages and everything on and on and on. So you, you take on a way more risk on that front. So you, I typically say to anyone, if you want to do this, like be prepared to close on this thing. To own thing. that building. Yeah, yep. to own that building. You need to be ready to go to buy that thing. And then you have the option to sell it off to somebody else. But it can be great business. And it's, it's it, you know where it became, I think like in Canada at least, it grew like massive popularity and, and it's, you saw it a lot. It was condos. Condos in Toronto – we talked about this. In yeah, episode. it's insane. Yeah. Like there's so many going up and they take two to three years to build. So people would pre-construction, put them under contract at 500K. Mm-hmm. Then by the time closing day comes, somebody's willing to pay 700 because the building right next door is now selling them for 700 because it was three years later. Yeah, you sell the contract. So you just sell the contract. You never actually close on that condo. So sometimes you'd get away with, actually in Toronto, their deposits are quite big. So you probably had to put down 25%. So you probably put in 100K over three years. And then on closing day, you get back a check for... 100 plus 200 to get 300k back so yeah we had someone come through our office and approach us about this and i think we i think we talked about it briefly on an episode but you're right it it happened a lot in pre-construction condos where everyone knows you don't need the full 100 percent until the place is built and you get the keys so you put 25 percent down and then you wait until someone wants it way more than what you paid for it maybe it's 500,000 someone comes along they would be willing to pay 700,000 you say well i will sell you this contract for that unit because I've got first dibs, I've got it under agreement to you for 700000 provided that the value now supports that and they can get a loan on that. They buy it essentially in one transaction, they buy it from you for 700000 simultaneous to you buying it from the seller for 500000 Yeah. And on a bigger scale, people do that with income properties. Someone comes across a good deal, maybe they don't want to just kick a finder's fee to someone. What they do is they tie it up for a million bucks. 
Yeah. But they know that they could find someone willing to pay $1.2 million for that, and they put the agreement in their names or assignee, and they assign the agreement to the new buyer. Again, the challenge is it has to support the new appraisal. So um, it has to be something that they, they got a below market deal on. But as the end buyer, you often don't care. Like if you're making money off it, the seller, you know, they agreed to sell it to you exactly. for that price. I don't much care. But what Neil's getting at is why that's sometimes better than the finder's fee is a finder's fee, you have to pay out of pocket. If someone brings me a deal and it's a great deal and I've got to pay them 20, 30,000 bucks for it, okay. that's, exactly. coming, that's coming right out of the pocket. If they bring me a deal that's already in a contract and I can just p- purchase it conventionally, the fact that I have to pay an extra maybe $100,000, $200,000 on the price point, it's not a big deal because it's not coming out of my pocket, right? Yeah. Like it, it doesn't matter to me. But the flip side is, yes, they may be making 200000 instead of thirty grand, but if I don't come through or if no one else buys it, uh-oh, they're, they've got to buy that losing, property. They're probably losing their deposit. And Whatever deposit they put in with the a lot more. Yeah, yeah. So it's high risk with assignments, um, but higher potential reward. And I don't mind the finder's fee because I don't mind just paying liquid cash to someone. Running the deal um, yourself. The, the tricky thing too with the finder's fee system is, you know, you don't have, you know, so someone else could scoop you. Yeah. I mean, we would never scoop someone who brought us a deal because then they're never going to de- bring a deal again. Yeah. But if that seller's shopping it to you or if you know about it and you can flip it to someone else. Well, what if someone else finds out about it and you get scooped and all of a sudden, you know, you did this work, you found this deal and you don't get paid off it by putting it under contract and then assigning it. You've got that first right of refusal. You've got that property locked up. Um, you just need to have long timelines so that someone else can get it closed in time. I was going to say, yeah, big giant asterisk with the assignments. Two things are on top of doing an assignment, like you better have your stuff in order because they need to do their due diligence, right? Like, so yeah. you need to be able to, well, I have to come in for an inspection, but you're not actually coming in for an inspection. You're a buyer that's doing it. And a lot of times sellers aren't super keen to find out that their property is being flipped to somebody else for no. another couple hundred grand. No. And they can then in their contract say that there's no assignments allowed. Yeah. And so they can they can stifle your deal. So you really need to know what you're doing and, and having every, all your ducks in order to be able to pull it off. So it is, let's say, easy money, but it can also be very difficult. Ooh, you have risk. to have a ton of trust huge in your risk. buyer that's buying it from you to be able to handle it. It's, it's a massive risk, huge reward relative to what you have to put in. Really, it could just be time. You don't ever have to put any money in. But if well, you, you got to put a deposit in. and Which you can charge from your buyer though, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, if you find them quick order, right? If you have a six-week due diligence and third week, fourth week, you still haven't found your end buyer, Yeah, you know, you're, you're starting to sweat there, right? The, like you might have to back out of that deal before your six-week timeline. Exactly. And, that, and that's, that is very common. The other thing to consider, obviously, is the new rules in our new bill, a uh, bill of housing rights or whatever it was called, they have an intention to basically ban assignments. I think they're going to come after it. And it, sure. it was targeting, I know again, I think it's targeting the condo market pre-con, yeah. at the pre-con market or pre-construction, but I think it's going to apply to everything. And so you're going to see it across the board, I think. On I don't know that it, it that it will apply to everything. Commercial operates in its own world, man. It does. Like the same it thing we were talking about vendor takebacks. You cannot do that on residential mortgages. It is a different world. True. So I, 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 just, I, I don't I just, know. I, my concern becomes, so the seller is always going to find out. Even on closing day, at the yeah. end of the day, the seller finds out because their lawyer is actually putting the deed in somebody else's name to what's on the contract. Yeah. So and seller they may care, they may not. And if assignments are banned, I can see it now. It's going to get the closing day. Seller's going to find out and they're going to go, ask my lawyer, what can I do about this? Lawyers are like, well, technically assignments are illegal. And so then they can, they can. And to be clear, that that's not the case currently. That's that's something they're talking about. And predominantly, they weren't even explicit about this, but it's predominantly to curb the speculative pre-construction buying in Dartmouth and Vancouver. Right, Toronto, that, that, Toronto and Vancouver. What, Dartmouth. Dartmouth. I, I like your optimism. Oh, I like where man, you're going with this. Dartmouth one on day, one day, it's sweet. They're gonna be throwing That's up all those hilarious. big towers and wise. Yeah, Toronto and <laughs> uh, and Vancouver. Guys um, little, and other markets. Little bias living world, in so. Dartmouth. Hey, yeah, this, but yeah. So, I mean, maybe I will buy. Maybe it's time to upgrade. It, the it's common. You know, again, it's same thing in this market. It's become common. It's huge in Toronto. It's become common here because I think a lot of people from Ontario are coming here and doing it here now. And so I'm getting people calling me all the time, like, hey, I got this, hey, I got this, I got that. And so. some people did it inadvertently. I mean, we rolled out a few condos a, a couple of years ago that had really major launches. I remember Southport was a big launch. Yep. Harris East was a big launch. Yep. And you'd go into these places and you'd put down your little deposit and then it took two years to build them. Yeah. And I knew people who like got divorced in the two years that yeah, it took to get yeah. the thing built. Yeah. And then they effectively were selling it and and made money, but they hadn't put it in that it could be assigned. So they yeah. had to actually close on it and then resell it, which means you get hammered with, you know, paying your legal fees and all this stuff. But that has happened a little bit here, this idea of, of assigning 
uh, of signing smaller deals. But what we're talking about is for for larger properties, and it's a really interesting way that people out there can make money off of real estate other than owning it. Because yeah. if assignments and go well, you don't own the property. No. And yeah. it can be, it can be again, super lucrative, but there is definitely a huge amount of risk. You want to have all your ducks in order uh, to do it. I actually, I did a reassignment this year as well. That's how I stomach yeah, the right. fact that I paid yeah. reassignment fees is I did one being the reassignee yeah. uh, earlier, earlier yeah. this year. So yeah, that was a tough one because it was a multi-property, multiple three seller. Three different buyers, wasn't it? Three different buyers, four different sellers, three different properties. Yeah. Very intense. And it actually all closed on the same day. Yeah. Craziness. Right on. But uh, maybe we'll talk about that another time. Cool. Yeah. And in terms of takeaways today, like I was saying, I think maybe I'll get a nicer car. Maybe we'll have an update for people in the next few months. Ooh. Might have a nicer vehicle. We'll see about the private money. You know, I mean, you're, you're in a position now, I don't think you necessarily need to get into private money. But I think for a lot of people listening, if you're trying to make that jump, it can be a really strong and good option. But you got to make sure you run all your numbers and you're prepared, like everything, like blow your budgets out of the water, yeah, blow yeah. your timelines out of the water. Because you want to be prepared for that, yeah. And then, and then assignments. Another thing to look into if you're interested in in that kind of a thing. It's, it is a high stress business, but it can be super, super lucrative. Uh, and you can start with something smaller, like you said, like a condo is nice because it might take two years to build. Unfortunately, in Halifax, the one or two condo projects that are available pre-con exp- explicitly say no assignments in them. Really? Okay, yes. I haven't looked at them, but that doesn't surprise me. I have looked at them, and they literally will be like, no chance. Like it says right in the contract, you cannot reassign these. Yeah. So you don't, you can't really do it in Halifax, but again, it's something that they do quite openly in Toronto. Mm-hmm. So yeah, something to consider. And then I think the final thing is to just watch out for the global economy. Yeah. We'll tackle that in another episode. Neil is that's like a three Neil's episode preaching, thing. man. He's on the. I'm going to be freaking out. I am yeah. freaking out. Well, give us a lot of content to talk about. So keep yeah. watching, smash the like button, give yeah. us some feedback, and share this. If you get a chance to share this on whatever platform you, you know, yeah. subscribe to, send the greatly, good greatly appreciate for the ones that have shared it and everyone that's sending the feedback and commenting. We're loving it. Yeah. All right. We'll so, talk to you guys next thanks time. Thanks for listening. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh.